these things in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And as you are seated, I would invite you to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Uh, always easy to find a book like Revelation, even if you're not real familiar with the Bible, because it's the last book in the Bible. So if you're not sure where to go, just turn to the end, and you will be there soon. Revelation chapter 20. This has been an, an ongoing study for us as a church in the New Testament's um, maybe best known, or perhaps I should say most notorious book of the Bible. And we're drawing to an end. We've just got three more chapters to go, and we will be uh, through this book. As you're turning your pages there, I want to remind us by way of getting into the message this morning of a controversy, not really surprising, uh, that took place three years ago at the Winter Olympic Games in Sochi, Russia. Some of you are avid Olympic followers, as my family uh, typically is when those games are taking place. Um, Not surprisingly, the ladies' figure skating competition had a controversy, you may remember, just a few uh, years ago, when Russian figure skater Adelina Sotnikova, I believe I got that correct, uh, beat out South Korea's defending champion Kim Yuna for the women's uh, figure skating gold medal, despite not having skated visibly better. Since she was from the home country, this uh, a real controversy erupted. How did she pass up the reigning world champion when it didn't appear to be uh, the case that she had done noticeably better? This was actually just, of course, the latest in an ongoing series of controversies with major international competitions, especially at the Olympics, and particularly in sports where the final outcome is left to judges. And that's a real problem, isn't it? There are so many sports where the outcome in, in the Olympics where the outcome is fairly objective. Uh, who scored more points? They win. Who crossed the finish line first? They win. And, and particularly with the kind of timing and video technology that's available today, often there's really no controversy in knowing who won. But then there's these sports where it's somewhat more subjective, right? Gymnastics, figure skating, sports like that, where there are attempts to standardize and, 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 and objectify the evaluation of the athlete's performance, but at the end of the day, it falls into the hands of judges to determine who did the best and who wins. And of course, that's part of the drama of those sports, even when there's not really a significant controversy, as there was a few years ago. Nonetheless, that, that moment of judgment is great television, isn't it? You know, the, the athlete goes out there and performs, and then, and then they're on the sideline, you know, they're, they're off the mat or they're off the ice, and they're just pacing back and forth, you know, they got the warm-up jacket on, and you can just see the intensity, because all they can do is just like, wait. All they can do is wait for the judges to come up with their score. Years of hard work, training, and sacrifice culminate in that defining moment when having having laid it all out in competition, having done everything they can do, all they can do now is simply wait to see if what they did was enough in the eyes of the judges. Now, most of us are probably not in danger of facing an Olympic judging committee at any point in our lives. But this is a fitting picture of what Revelation chapter 20 is going to describe for us. A moment of truth that all humanity actually will face, and it's even more important than the Olympics. 
Chapter 20 is, like many of the chapters in the book of Revelation, not very long, only about 14 verses uh, long, but it is very dense and it is full of things. It breaks into three sections, and so as is always the case, we're going to walk through them one at a time, going to land and spend most of our time on the third and final section this morning. And so let me read the first section, and we're going to see how this flow kind of goes. If you're in Revelation chapter 20, we're going to read the first six verses together and then comment on it before moving on. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. John writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those who had authority to judge, to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Because over such a person, the second death, about which we'll read more in a moment, has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. We'll pause there before moving on. Um, This chapter is really sort of a, a summary of the previous three. We begin kind of the seventh and final section of Revelation, roughly three chapters each. Chapters 20 to 22 are kind of the last section. And as is so often the case, themes that were talked about before get picked up again. We circle back around and talk to them again, but in new and different kind of ways. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you, you were walk, with us when we walked through chapters 17, 18, and 19, which was the last segment, where there was two and a half chapters worth of promises of God that he will ultimately defeat Satan, sin, and evil, and then a half a chapter picture of how awesome that's going to be in heaven in chapter 19. Well, these next three chapters kind of reverse that. You get a little bit of a description of the defeat of Satan. That's this morning in chapter 20. And then about two and a half chapters worth of description of the party in heaven. Come back next week. It's going to get even better. Okay? So that's kind of where we're going. Now, these six verses we just read are the uh, famous millennium. Many of you may have heard of that in your uh, course of Bible study. These first three verses, Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, are the primary place, really the the only explicit place where this imagery crops up, and it's mentioned again briefly later um, down in verse 5. This this picture of a 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth where Satan is bound. There's two basic ways to summarize this, to kind of simplify it, that this passage has been understood Uh, by Christians. Uh, One is that it is a fairly literal description of a point of time that is yet future. It's going to happen sort of at the the final uh, end of history that Jesus brings about. That's one option. Uh, The other option is to see it as a metaphorical or symbolic description of the current uh, age right now, the time between Jesus' ascent to heaven after the day of Pentecost and his return. In other words, what we're living in right now. 
Uh, those of you that have been around me a while know that I think the latter understanding is much more natural to the text of the Bible, um, but I'm happy to report that this is not an issue of first importance. Uh, regardless of, uh, of, of really solid Christians see it both ways, regardless of which way you tend to see it, it uh, doesn't mean you're not a Christian. Uh, if you disagree with me, it just means you're wrong. But you're st- <laughs> All right, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, okay? God still loves you, right? <laughs> no, seriously. Um, we're actually, this morning, not going to get too far into the differences between those two views, and, and the reason for that is because weighing the evidences for them would take every minute I have for the sermon this morning and a whole lot more minutes, and it just wouldn't be the most productive use of our time. Although it's great to talk about, and so if you're interested in like why those are seen differently and what the differences are, you're welcome to and invited to come back on Wednesday night when we have uh, two more weeks of our Harvest Wednesday classes, one of which is covering the book of Revelation, and we just deal with questions that you want to ask and we talk about it more. So bring your questions on Wednesday night. We'd be happy to go there if that's where you want to go. Today, what I want to do is see the larger flow of thought in this chapter. Uh, Regardless of when this period of time that's being described takes place, the key question for this morning is what's the point? What's, What's the message and how does it impact us? And I think that larger flow of thought is clear. Regardless of how the timing is understood, the message is one that has been consistent throughout the book of Revelation. And that is simply this. Satan, for all his ferocity and power and strength, is on a leash. Satan, for all of his ferocity, for all of his power, and for all of his strength, he is on a leash. He is bound. He is restrained. He is already ultimately defeated. We already saw this back in chapter 12 where there was this image of him fighting in heaven and losing and being cast out of heaven. Over and over again, you get these pictures throughout Revelation that Satan, as powerful as he is in this world, is an ultimately defeated foe. What appears to be an utterly hopeless amount of evil in the world, which cannot be overcome, is in fact subject to God and will in fact be overcome, which leads to the second part of that uh, chapter, or that section, verses four through six. Those who, another very common theme in Revelation, bank on Jesus Christ and stay faithful to him will share in his victory. In some ways, even now, and definitely for all eternity. That's the message of these verses, bottom line. There's a lot of other things going on, but that's what this really comes down to. It is once again another version of the picture that says Satan is on a leash, and those who ultimately bank on Christ will share in his ultimate victory. Now the point of that, that there's, there's a lot of points to that, but remember that the people to whom this book was originally written Uh, Christians at the end of the first century in the Roman Empire, which was not a particularly friendly place to live out one's Christian faith, first century Rome. You'd already had emperors like Nero who had come and gone, and Nero is famous for, among many other things, including lighting cities on fire and being fairly insane, as were many of the Roman emperors back in that point in history. He was also famous for executing Christians with the power of the state, This was not a friendly place, and this sort of oppressive power against the church was quite intimidating and a fearful thing to live under, as you can only imagine if you're a Christian, and the whole power of the state is overtly and even violently against you if you identify yourself with Christ. There's a real risk there, and what does this image do for Christians in that situation? 
It reminds them, no matter how powerful the influence of Satan is in this world, he is on a leash, and God will ultimately defeat him. Those who stay faithful, no matter the cost now, will share in his victory. So stay faithful to Christ. What this means is, among many other things, Christians should reject utopianism. We should reject utopianism. You know that word means utopia, right? Sort of this picture of kind of an idealistic world, an idealistic society. And there have been many versions of utopianism. There are always versions of it all throughout history. It's not just a recent thing. But in recent history, we have our own versions of it. The belief that if we band together enough as people, we can finally overcome sin. We can finally overcome evil. We can finally make the world a better place. We can create utopia. We can make the better world that we all long to live in. But the biblical message here, if our our thinking is shaped by Scripture, is pretty clear. Our ultimate hope for the defeat of Satan and sin and evil and death in the world is in Christ, not ourselves. There are many negative and positive examples of utopianism. One, One thinks just in the last century of World War I, which as many of you know, was called the war to... The war to end all wars. You guys know that. It was so widespread, it was so significant, actually had its, its origins in the belief that if the German military machine was defeated early on in World War I, we might be able to set up uh, Europe, at the time it was Europeans who were thinking this, that if we do it right, we will never go to war again. So let's just defeat the Germans, and then if we play our cards right, war will be over. And then as World War I went on, it became so bloody, so brutal, so pointless, that for many people, the phrase took on a whole new meaning. This is such an awful war that after this, nobody's ever going to want to fight a war again until 15 years later when we were right back at it again in World War II. The idea that something, if we just try hard enough or, or we experience something awful enough, we'll never do that. We can, we can train ourselves out of it has shown historically to not carry much weight. There's many more positive examples of utopianism that some people hold to. Uh, we will found the United Nations. We will export democracy, uh, give more people uh, a voice in their own government and, 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 and don't just leave government and militaries in the hands of these dictators who are likely to send their, their sons and daughters you know, to war fighting their own sort of ego-driven agendas. Um, support uh, the development of economies. Universalize education. If, if we do these kinds of things, if you give people opportunity, then they will um, be much more likely to develop healthy and productive lives, especially in the undeveloped parts of the world, and less likely to go to war out of desperation. By the way, all these things are good. The idea of creating a platform for nations to talk to each other without shooting each other, that's a good thing. <laughs> uh, the idea of giving people a voice in their government, basic human dignity, great thing. The idea of developing education and supporting local economies. Our church is involved, especially in those latter two efforts, in ministries that do that in both Terra Blanche, Haiti, and Boma, South Sudan, to support local economies and especially to give access to education so people have the ability to lift themselves out of poverty. Those are very good things. But you see, for many, they become utopian dreams. If we do enough of this, we will eradicate evil from the face of the planet. But friends, we don't support these things because we think that that in and of itself is going to transform the world or make it a sin-free place. 
only Christ can do that. In fact, the reason we're involved in those kinds of things is as a visible and tangible expression of the love of Christ that points to the only thing that can change a human heart, and that's the gospel. And the privilege to be able to do that amongst some of the poorest of the world's poor is an incredible calling that we embrace with enthusiasm, but not with utopianism. You see the difference? Just reading the local, national, and international headlines will show you so much disease, starvation, war, corruption, and death that it just overwhelms the senses. The point is simply this. If human effort is all we have to rely on to make a better world, history does not give us much hope. History doesn't give us much hope. But the Bible here is painting a different picture. Looking not just at the current historical reality, but understanding at a much greater level what's going on behind that reality. The ultimate hope for history is in the victory of Christ over sin, Satan, and death. Now that leads to the second section of verses 7 through 10. Let's read that together. Verse 7, Then when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched upon the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Let's pause there for a moment. The scene now shifts to one of warfare and a sort of history-ending climactic battle cast in terms that people in the first century would have really understood in terms of warfare. Uh, you notice those funny-sounding names in verse 8, Gog and Magog. What is going on there? What's going on there is what happens so often in the book of Revelation. Uh, that is a reference back to the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel and much of his prophetic imagery. Uh, you'll remember as we've gone through this series, we've said that pretty much every other verse, the book of Revelation is going back to something in the Old Testament and drawing God's Old Testament prophetic promises into the present as we then look to the future in light of who Christ is and what he has done. We see that happening again in this passage. It's going back to Ezekiel where Gog and Magog were sort of symbolic or typological pictures of nations who attack the people of God. Now historically, Gog was actually a real person uh, that was a, a leader, a ruler. That's pretty clear in, in Ezekiel's prophecy if you go back and you read that Old Testament passage. Uh, he was a, a prince or some kind of a military or a political leader. And Magog was sort of a tribe or a nation. It was a people group, one of many that in ancient history was arrayed against the Israelites, the people of God. But in Ezekiel's prophecy, they become sort of symbolic for worldly nations that are against God and they fight against the people of God in much the same way that we saw Babylon in the previous couple of chapters, which was a real historical empire that was gone by the time John was writing this, but it becomes symbolic for human nations that are actively and even uh, militarily opposed to God and his people. 
So here, just like in Ezekiel, we get this image in John's vision of the the nations, not just now one specific nation, but he says this is all the nations of the world, the four corners of the earth. Again, a symbolic or metaphorical way of saying basically everybody is gathered by Satan at the end to there's this final climactic uh, battle to oppose God. And, and, And in this image, the interesting thing is like they're winning. They're winning, or at least it looks like they're winning, but they snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. You see, they're depicted as surrounding the holy city. That is clearly Jerusalem. Now, in in the mindset of people who lived in the ancient world, that image said it all. If you've got an an enemy army that is, you know, like the, the sand of the sea, there's so many people out there you can't number them, and they're surrounding your city, that's another way of saying you're dead meat. You're dead meat. What that means is your army has already lost out there on the battlefield, away from the city, And because your army is lost, the opposing armies who have defeated your army are now right at the city gates. Now, they would build walls in in the ancient world to sort of as defensive uh, positions. And so you got your few archers left and you can shoot arrows or chuck rocks at them or whatever. You're in a pretty defensible position, but you're also stuck. And so what an opposing army would often do is rather than just assail the walls and and lose a lot more soldiers when they didn't have to, they would just blockade the city. Uh, They would lay siege to it. They would surround it, cutting off all the roads to and from the city. And everybody that was inside was just stuck inside. And then they would just wait you out. Because eventually, you're going to run out of food. And you're probably going to run out of water because all the food is grown in the fields which are outside the city and that's where the enemy army is. So you can only live on what's inside the city. So you may be protected for a moment, but once that enemy army surrounds your walls, it's only a matter of time. They're going to starve you out until you either surrender or die. They don't care which. Either way, they win. And so there's this picture of sure doom. The, the army can't be counted. The outcome appears to be certain. Unless there's some miraculous intervention, unless some reinforcements or some ally comes in from outside and engages that army and, and, and allows you a way to break out, you're, you're dead. But of course, that's exactly what happens. By the way, this scene had happened to the literal Jerusalem many times throughout history. Uh, it had happened in the Babylonian siege. We mentioned that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, 586 BC, where the Babylonian Empire surrounded and blockaded the city for a couple of years before finally breaking down its walls and annihilating the few people who were left. The utter je- uh, desecration of Jerusalem 400 years later in 168 BC was a thing of legend among the Jewish people. Uh, a Seleucid king by the name of Antiochus IV Epiphanes who desecrated the temple and destroyed the city. And then, of course, the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman Empire in A.D. 70, which had taken place just about 20 years before Revelation was written, if scholars have their dating all figured out correctly. So for the Jewish people and for Christian people who are familiar with Jewish thought and history, the idea of Jerusalem, God's city, being surrounded by pagan hordes and overwhelmed brought up a sure sign of defeat and doom. And these sieges become typological symbols of the last attempt of a sinful world to overthrow the rule of God spurred on by Satan's deceptions. But what happens? Is there a miraculous intervention? Yes, And this time it doesn't come from an ally army, it comes as fire falling from heaven. Just when all hope is lost, and just when the evil and the world looks overwhelming and completely, you're completely unable to defeat it, the outcome is sure, you're doomed, evil is going to win, right at that moment, fire falls from heaven in an instant, whoosh, they're gone. 
Just like that. Just like that. And so the point of this is simply this. Having been depicted as, as kind of this final battle, Satan's victory looks assured, but just when it's there, God's ultimate victory is swift. And all God has to do is think the thought, and it's over. Do you see the consistency of the message? No matter how things look now, God is in control. His victory is sure. Satan himself is thrown into the lake of fire. We'll see something about that in a moment. Um, In fact, let's move on to the third and final section now. Verses 11 to the end of the chapter in verse 14. This final defeat opens up a whole new scene. Pictured as uh, now not a military scene, but more of a courtroom, a legal scene. Verse 11. Then, a new vision, I saw a great white throne and him who is seated on it. From his presence, the earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. If you've ever heard the phrase, the Lamb's Book of Life, this is where it comes from. Revelation chapter 20. The scene is a a judgment scene. Uh, Here we are, standing before God, all of humanity, great and small, everyone who has already died, raised from the dead, and standing before this great white throne, which in that day and age was a very clear picture of of a judge sitting on his seat and rendering his judgment in a, a criminal case. This is the great moment of judgment. The life has been lived. The performance is in. There's no going back and having do-overs. It's all done. And now the only thing left is to see if what I've brought to the table is enough in the eyes of the judge. What does that feel like? When you see those athletes pacing back and forth, tense, what does that feel like? I remember a scene that took place in my own life when I was very young. In fact, I was so young I've forgotten most of the details, but I remember how I felt. I was in kindergarten, and a friend of mine and I, I have no idea whose fault it was, I'm sure it was his, because I can't remember, so we'll blame him, decided in the last recess of the day, there's like, I don't know, an hour left of school or something after this recess, we just decided to skip out. I don't know what overcame us. Like, we're just like, we're out of here. Let's go down to the park a few blocks away and play. So we did. We waited till the yard duty teacher had her back turned and off we went. And we played. We had fun. It was great. We were just living the dream. A little while later, because God always sides with parents, <laughs> just totally unfair, of all the people that drives by the park, here comes my mother. And she sees us over there. Now, 
I'm, I mean, I'm a little guy. I don't really understand time that much. But clearly, at this point, enough time had gone by that school was probably out. So she initially didn't think much of it. As soon as they saw her car, there was that, <gasps> I've been having fun, and I just realized I did something wrong, and I'm about to get my comeuppance. Until she pulls over, rolls down the window, and says, hey, come on, get in the car. I'm like, she's not yelling at me. <sighs> Waves of relief. She doesn't realize I left school early. It must, school must be out. She just assumed that school's out and I'm down here with my buddy playing at the park. So she's like, come on, jump in the car. I'll take you, I'm headed home, I'll take you home. Great, I jump in the back of the car. I'm sitting in the back seat. I'm nervous, but she's got to watch the road. She can't watch me. Thank you, Lord. Funny, I don't remember the details, but I remember all these feelings. And I'm just starting to think, I may get away with this. Hey, buddy, how's your day? You know, she's just asking me basic questions. Oh, fine, no big deal. Thinking I'll never do that again. But I may get away with this thing. Until, because God is always on the side of parents, she says to me, hey, where's your umbrella? Now that I remember. Because the moment she said the word umbrella, it was like a knife of terror just sliced through my gut. It had been raining some that day uh, earlier. I'd brought an umbrella to school. I left it in the classroom. And I wasn't, I mean, I would have gotten nailed anyway, but I wasn't smart enough or quick enough on my feet to say, oh, I must have left at school, don't worry, I'll get it tomorrow, mom, no big deal, right, you know. Oh, I must have left it at school. Oh, no problem, school's a couple blocks away, let's just go by and pick it up. <laughs> You're kidding me. She seriously says that. She drives me to school. She's like, I'll just wait, you just jump out, go into your classroom and get your umbrella. I go out, I go into the classroom, all the kids are gone, of course, school's over, and there's my teacher in the front room. I walk in, I grab the umbrella, I turn around, I try to walk out, and she's like, where have you been? <laughs> you know, she's panicked. This lady had lost a couple students. They've been looking for us for the last, like, hour. And of course, at that point, it all comes out. <laughs> and my mom finds out what I did, and, and there's just that sense of, like, I'm dead meat. I know what I've done. I thought I was going to get away with it, but I'm not. I'm not fooling the teacher, and I'm not ultimately fooling my mother. I don't remember what happened next. I don't remember what kind of trouble I got into. I just remember the sheer terror of having the facts of my transgression laid out before those who had the authority to judge me. That's terrifying. I know you've all had an experience like that, so don't look at me so judgmentally, okay? <laughs> what would it be like to have, what will it be like to have every thought, every feeling, every action you have ever taken laid bare for all to see? No... Facebook image of yourself to kind of deflect reality. Look at this stuff over here because I'm not that ashamed about it so that you don't look at this stuff over here. No way to sort of control the narrative or manipulate a discussion such that I actually come out looking okay. Just the sheer unvarnished truth of my sin exposed before the one set of eyes that is very Difficult, in fact, impossible to deceive. That's the picture, that's the image in this last vision of chapter 20. Here we are, all these books are open and it's pretty clear what's in those books. A record of your life, of my life. 
clearly spelled out. It's being read out before the judge. Here's everything he's thought. Here's everything she's said. Here's everything they've done. Not spun, clear, clinical, cold, factual. That's who this person has been. And God is listening. How long do you suppose that your chapter in those books will be? Kind of scary, isn't it? Really, like everything? Mine might be longer than some other people's. (laughs) Might not be as long as some other people's, though. So maybe I feel a little bit good about that. But just as that thought erupts, (laughs) or sort of occurs to the mind, just as it tries to, to take over, the rest of the image just blows it away. Every single person is brought before God and judged, the Bible says, according to what they have done, according to what was written in the books. Any hope that I have that I'm, I'm better than anybody else goes away because I'm not judged on a curve. I'm not compared to the next guy in line. The books are opened, and God's all-seeing eyes say, this has been your life, and it's all laid out there. It's a terrifying thought. And yet, as terrifying as it is, it's very good for us for a number of reasons, not the least of which is it utterly and completely blows away and deflates any basis for me thinking I've got my stuff together better than those other people, whoever they are. Oh, sure, I may not be perfect. In fact, I know I'm not, but I've got this much together. You see, every person has a natural tendency to sort of justify him or herself, to feel good about ourselves, to establish who we are based on what we've done, what we think, how we live, what we believe. There's different ways that people do this, but we all do it. For some of us, we justify, seek to justify ourselves by blame shifting. That's the like, okay, I know that I've done some bad things, but that's because of that person. It was my parents or my lack of parents. It's my spouse or my lack of a spouse. It's my kids or my whatever, my friends, my boss. If you had seen, if you understood what I have experienced, you would have a lot more compassion for me. Which may actually be true, depending on the circumstances we're talking about. But you see how quickly it becomes a way for me to justify my own actions? I know I've done some things that aren't great or I've, I've thought some things that God probably doesn't approve of, but it's their fault. And so, so blame shifting becomes a way to justify myself. I'm not proud of it, but it, it should be sort of okay. There should be an asterisk next to the black, that black mark. Let's gray that mark out a little bit because there's some mitigating circumstances. For some of us, it's blame shifting. For others, it's by uh, minimizing or ignoring our bad deeds and choosing to focus on our good ones. That's very popular in our culture. Ignore or at least minimize my bad deeds and focus on my good ones. This is when I say like, okay, look, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm a good person. Like, I, I know I've done some things, I'm not going to defend it, that, that aren't really defensible, but, but overall, I show up to work on time. And I work hard. I work hard to treat everybody with dignity and respect, even if they're different from me or they live different than me. I just try to treat them with, with common decency and courtesy. I work hard, I try to pay my bills, I try to take care of those that I love and and give of my time to other people. 
And again, all those things may be true and may be very good things, but again, do you see how quickly they can become a means of justifying myself? I need to feel okay about me, and so I'm gonna, yeah, acknowledge that maybe there's some of those things there, but let me minimize them and focus on this stuff here. Think positive thoughts and focus on that, and then I can feel good about who I am because I can find enough good in myself to focus on. And lastly, many of us try to justify ourselves in our own minds by emphasizing who we align ourselves with. I'm part of the right group, which usually means I'm not part of the wrong group. And that's how I can justify myself. For us as Christians, often this means I align myself with the people of God. I read the Bible. I go to church. I do my best to follow it. Of course I'm sinful. Of course I'm less than perfect. But I'm trying to follow Jesus over and against whoever's over there. People of other religions. People of no religion. If you're politically liberal, the other people are conservative. If you're politically conservative, the other people are liberal. And because I'm not them, I feel better about myself. Sometimes it's even subculture stuff. If I'm a younger Christian, sometimes I look at older, more traditional Christians who seem so stodgy and and so reflexive and so judgmental, and I'm not them, and so I feel good about myself because I'm a Christian, but I'm a different kind of Christian. I'm a better kind of Christian. And there's always a them over there. Maybe it's people of another ethnic group, or maybe it's people who are xenophobic and they just judge people on the basis of ethnic groups, and I don't. I accept everybody no matter their ethnic background. You see, one way or another, there's always another group that I can define myself by not being a part of. And in fact, it's human nature to do that. I hate to admit it, but if I'm honest, I catch myself doing that all the time. The thoughts don't go consciously through my head that way, but that's exactly what's going on in my heart. I feel good about myself because I'm not them. A truth-oriented bigot, or if you're in this camp, a postmodern relativist who just denies all truth. It, it doesn't almost matter what the camps are. There's always other camps of people, and I define myself against them by not being them. I define myself in reaction to them. And friends, the point of all of this is that this image of being before the throne of God and having these books open where God is sitting as a judge is that we are not evaluated based on our membership in one group or not in another group. We are evaluated not relative to other people. We are evaluated relative to what's written in these symbolic books. Who have I been? What have I done? And what does my life, as I lived it, say about the most important, cherished possessions of my heart? Who am I living for, myself or for the Lordship of Christ. That's not measured by our affiliations alone. It's measured by a comprehensive lifestyle. That's what's being put on display here. So what's the result of that? This sort of soul-piercing, all-laid-bare, cannot-deceive-these-eyes kind of evaluation. The result of it is predictable and pretty bleak. Every person, the small, the great, everybody is raised to dead, everybody is judged, and everyone, with no exceptions that are mentioned here in the text as those books are read, is eternally condemned before a just and a holy God.
the lake of fire is an image that depicts, as, as John tells us, the second death, that is eternity in hell. That's what the symbolic image means. It's clearly explained. Meaning anyone who holds to Satan, he's already been thrown in there. That was a place that was originally designed for him, the chief rebel of the universe. But anybody who continues to hold to his rebellion against God also will share in his fate, the fate of the chief rebel himself. And that turns out to be everybody. Everybody. There's nobody whose life is looked at and they say, you are so good and holy, you pass the judgment. The books are opened and people are condemned. Everyone, Jew, Gentile, men, women, religious, unreligious, relatively moral and extremely immoral. You see, that's why the Apostle Paul can write in the beginning of Romans chapter 2 as he lists the sins that are committed by rebellious people. And then he says to, uh, and, and, and religious people, he says to religious people, and so who are you when you judge them because you do the very same things? That's the logic of the New Testament. It's cropping up here again in the book of Revelation. There are not two camps of people in the world, those who are righteous because they follow God and those who are unrighteous because they don't. That's not how it works. There is one camp of people in the world, those who fall short of the glory of God, or as the Apostle Paul puts it, all have sinned and fall. All, everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what's being depicted here. But in the midst of this intense and somber picture, there's a powerful note of hope, isn't there? Because all of these books with chapters and chapters of who I really am, what I've really done, what I've really thought, what I've really said, what I've really done, and the life that I've lived, and it's all clearly spelled out, and you can see it plain as plain, Matt Garino is a rebel against God. He's living for himself, not for the glory of God. There's a whole lifestyle that proves it. It's all written in those books. But there is one other book, isn't there? There is one other book mentioned at first briefly and then gone back to later, the middle of verse 12. All these books were opened. Then another book is opened, which is the book of life. And then it goes on. It talks about how everybody is judged according to that, uh, what's written in those books. And it concludes verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. Meaning what? Meaning everybody fails the test of the other books. But just before the final judgment is enforced, there's one exception. There's one out. There's another book that's opened. And this is a book that leads not to a second death. This is a book, presumably with names in it, according to kind of the flow of, of the symbolism, that leads to eternal life. And if anyone's book is not, uh, anyone's name is not written in that book, they're thrown in a lake of fire. Meaning if anyone's book name is written in that book, they're not. They escape that fate. The book of life becomes the great hope of humanity within the flow of thought and the symbolism of the book of Revelation. The ultimate hope is not only when Christ defeats Satan and his powers, but if you're aligned with Satan and his powers, you're going to go down in the defeat. The ultimate hope is not that I would be good enough or religious enough to avoid that judgment. The only hope is if my name is in that book. So how does one get his or her name in that book? That's the dominant question, is it not? That's what the imagery is begging for us to ask. 
We get our name in that book because of who Christ is. You see, friends, when Jesus Christ went to the cross, he died the sinner's death that we should have died. He paid that second death price. That he, he took death for me so that I would not have to take the second death. He died in my place. He died in your place. He lived the perfectly righteous life, the Bible tells us, that you and I should have lived but don't, and he now offers that to us. He says, you can have my righteousness as if it was yours, as if you did pass the test of all those books. And then he pays the sinner's penalty of death on the cross that I should have paid, but don't have to. He says, I'll take that punishment for you. I'll take the death for you. And then he offers that penalty for us as well. He says, I'll give you my righteousness. I'll take your penalty of sin. It's a divine exchange. And that is the gospel of Jesus. That's the good news of Jesus. He takes from us our guilt. He gives to us his righteousness. That's how he saves us. Friends, as somber as this picture of judgment is, the entire book of Revelation is such good news. It's good news. Because eternal life in the Bible is not like a lottery system. It's not like there's the masses of humanity and everybody's pretty bad, but you know, God's got the little white balls spinning around. He pulls a few out and says, oh, lucky you, lucky you, lucky you. Okay, you guys get to come in heaven. The rest of you are just gone. That's not how, the, that's not how it works. It's not a lottery system, nor is eternal life reserved only for those few who are fortunate enough to have the right ethnic background or the right family background or those who try hard enough to overcome their sin. Eternal life is for those whose names are written in the book of life, meaning eternal life is available to you right now before we get to the final judgment that's being depicted in this symbolic image of a universal courtroom. We're being shown these images in advance so that we might place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so friends, today, every single one of us has the opportunity to see our name written in the book of life by submitting to the lordship of Christ and placing our full faith in him. And, and as we conclude the sermon part of this and, and transition into worship by receiving communion and by singing to God and by having some time to process and reflect, which is what we're gonna do with the bulk of our worship service together this morning, let me, do, let me say this. The Bible does not have uh, two messages, one for Christians and one for non-Christians. The Bible doesn't have a message for non-Christians that says repent and believe in Jesus and then another message for Christians that says, you know, something else. The Bible has one message and it's the gospel of Jesus. It's the gospel of Jesus. That's the message of scripture. Meaning, if you're here this morning and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, the Bible's call is clear to you. You can have eternal life today banking our lives on Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice, that's how we get our names in that book to stick with the imagery. That's how we avoid the second death. That's how we spend eternity with God in hell. God is calling you to repent and to believe not in your own righteousness, but in his righteousness on your behalf. Not in what you can do to make up for your sin, but what he has done on the cross to make up for your sin. That's where life can begin. And friends, the gospel message is still the same for those of us who are members of this church. We're already committed Christians. We're already sure that our names are in the book of life because of what Jesus did, not because of what we did. The message is still the same. Are you living for yourself or are you living for your Lord? 
And we all know the answer to that. Some of both. He says, come to the foot of the cross. Bring your sin to me. Confess it. Repent of it. And embrace my forgiveness for you. Find your identity, not in who you belong to or what you do, but whose you are. And the sacrifice that Christ has made for us. Friends, what sins in your life do you tend to rationalize, ignore, or blame others for? I want us to take a moment here. We're going to transition into a time of communion. Um, I'd like to ask the worship team to go ahead and come up now. And as they get ready and they start playing some music soft in the background, I'm going to give us a minute here in our worship service to just kind of block out distractions. I'd encourage you to close your eyes. There's nothing super weird about that. We're just trying to encourage you to block out distractions. Take a moment to reflect and respond to what we've seen in the Word of God. May I suggest that you take a moment of silence to pray, just silently, where you are, to God. Asking God to bring to your mind sin that needs confessing. Confessing it to him, agreeing with him that before his all-seeing eyes you are guilty. And then embracing his sacrifice on your behalf as the just punishment for your sin. Prepare your heart to receive communion this morning by asking God to bring this to you and then bringing it back to the foot of the cross. Let's take a moment of reflection and prayer and then I'll lead us into communion together.